Sri Ramakrishna used to tell the story of a washerman who found a diamond. Now, remember, this is uh, the typical village washerman in uh, India who collects clothes and takes them to the river bed and washes them, dries them out, scrubs them. So. He, he found this diamond and he knew immediately it was a strange kind of a stone, a rock. But what good are rocks? They are only small ones are meant for scrubbing clothes and the big ones are meant for drying the clothes. <laughs> so, and he started using that shiny rock to scrub clothes. But one day he thought, this is a strange rock. Uh, let me ask my friend, the vegetable seller. He's wiser than me, he knows more. And he goes and asks the vegetable seller. The vegetable seller said, oh, it seems to be a valuable rock. I will give you um, a bag of potatoes for it or, or brinjals for it. Luckily, the washerman did not agree to that. He went further and asked somebody wiser and wiser and wiser till he went to the diamond merchant who saw it and he said, this is, this is amazing. I have never seen a diamond so big in my life. I'll give you 10 million rupees for it. And the washerman, his, all his poverty was uh, gone and uh, he became rich and happy and uh, so on. We have that diamond. We've always had it. Like that washerman, we don't know what we have. If we could appreciate what we have got, if you notice it for the first time, what we have got and begin to appreciate it, all our wants would be removed. Deep in the inside, our existential wants, they would be removed. We would truly find lasting peace. We would truly be beyond sorrow internally. If only we would learn to appreciate the diamond we have already got. So this retreat, we have come to the diamond merchant Sri Ramakrishna is sitting there to finally recognize that the, the diamond which we have already got. What is that? That awareness which is constantly there within us, which we are, our true inner nature, our essential nature. This whole retreat was about that. If you could ask, what is the takeaway from the retreat? It is that one thing our that pure consciousness, that un, undying, unflickering flame within, which is our essential nature. This is what the, all the Upanishads speak about. In the Kena Upanishad, when the student asks, O revered sir, what is that light by which the mind thinks, the light by which speech is uttered, the light by which we see and hear and smell and touch. What is that light? It is this one, this awareness which, which is constantly there shining forth. This is what the teacher tells the student. It is the eye of your eye, the ear of your ear, the mind of your mind, the speech of speech. What is that, that one thing which can be described as the eye of the eye, the mind of the mind, the ear of the ear? It is this awareness. Because of it, we, can, we have the experience of seeing. Because of it, we have the experience of thinking, of speaking, of hearing. All our life 
is lit up by this one consciousness. It is that one which in the Katopanishad and the Mundakopanishad, the Rishi sings of as that shining, everything else shines. By its light, all is lit up. It is that consciousness, that diamond which we already have. We always had it. It's right there, right now. It's because of that you can hear what I'm saying. It's because of that you can think. It's because of that you can think, I don't understand what he's saying. It's because of that. You are that. It is this very thing which the student asks in the Mundakopanishad. Kasminnu bhagavo vigyate sarvam idam vigyatam bhavati iti. Oh revered sir, what is that by knowing which everything is known? And, it, and it, what does the teachers tell him? Not straight away, Brahman or Atman, no. He says there are two kinds of knowledge. One is knowledge in the world, you know, science and medicine and history and language, even religion. And there's the other one, by the, knowing the imperishable, by knowing that, the higher knowledge, the supreme knowledge, by knowing which, you know everything. What is that imperishable? It is that, that diamond, that, that consciousness, which you are, eternally with you. You yourself, in fact, the real you. The transcendent knowledge is that by which the imperishable is realized. Realized as what? I am that. Happy I, miserable I, learned I, ignorant I, good I, bad I, all of those things, happy, miserable, learned, ignorant, good and bad, all come later. That I is that unsullied awareness, light shining. Some religions talk about God, some do not talk about God. Even if God were to appear to you, if God appears to you, God would appear in that light of that consciousness alone. God would be revealed to you in that consciousness alone, which you are. The world is revealed to you in that consciousness. What you call my suffering and misery are revealed to you in that consciousness. What you call success, happiness, uh, uh, my delight, bliss, all are revealed to you in that consciousness alone. It is that about which in the Chandogya Upanishad, Shweta Ketu goes to his, uh, you know, his father asks Shweta Ketu, this... Uh, one thing by knowing which everything is known, did your teachers teach you that? Shrutakesha says, no. How, what could be, how could you know everything by knowing one thing? By knowing one thing, you know only one thing. By knowing chemistry, you know only chemistry. By knowing mathematics, you know only mathematics. How is it that you can, by knowing one thing, you can know everything? And his father, I mean, I'm translating from the Upanishads. I'm giving a synoptic view of a whole range of Upanishads. The Rishi says... It is possible to know many things by knowing one thing. How? By knowing clay, you know all the parts made of clay. You don't know what kind of pot it will be, what shape and size, what ornate features there will be. But what do you know? You know that it is nothing but clay. If it was formed out of this lump of clay, whatever you make out of it, that's your expertise. That's the department of Maya. Yeah. What she will make out of this universe, infinite variety. But the material, the substance, the reality is one thing only. The Rishi calls it Sat, pure presence. What is that pure presence? You. Right now what you are. And out of that pure presence comes the infinite lives that we live. Swami Vivekananda says, Life after life we have seen. Not just this life. It's like each life is like a page turning over in a book. One page in a book. And the soul is turning over pages one by one. Until the whole book is finished. You return it to the library. Game of life is over. We are blessed, you know. To come to this knowledge in any form is a sign that the game of life is coming to an end. The storms of many lives are past. The rainbow is in the sky, which means the storms are at an end. It is a sign. 
the games are finally coming to an end. <laughs> I'm reminded that mountain there, it reminds me of a Zen poem, you know, this, a Japanese poem, the haiku they write, very beautiful. The storms are done, the last clouds are gone. Now we sit, the old mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. It is that one light, that consciousness, which is, which the sage in Chandogya Upanishad calls Sat. Just out of, as out of the same iron, different implements of iron are made, and by knowing that iron, you know all the implements of iron. The same gold out of which different ornaments are made, by knowing gold, you know all the, the, the reality of all the different ornaments, whatever the ornaments might be. In the same way, there is one presence, one sat, which the Upanishad Rishi says, out of which everything in the universe, it appears in that. They are manifestations of that one sat. And you can imagine the young student, Shweta Ketu, like any teenager today, going, yeah, so what? <laughs> and then the Rishi says, Tattvamasi, Shweta Ketu. That thou art. And now you can't say, so what? Because now it's talking about you. You are that. So this is the diamond which we have got and which we have been introduced to in this, uh, in this retreat. Vedanta, they say, they were like, nice saying, a cute saying in the, in the high Himalayas. What does Vedanta do? Praptasya prapti nivrittasya nivritti. Very funny. It says, it gives you what you have already got. And it removes what was never there. <laughs> the whole problem of samsara which we set up, you realize suddenly it was never there. And that is freedom from samsara. Though it keeps on appearing. And the freedom which we are seeking, the lasting peace and joy and stability, Many people have asked me, I'm beginning to get what you are saying, Swami, or I've already know this, what you are saying, Swami, but how do I stabilize myself in that? How do I become steady in that? It goes away. It fades away. I get confused again. A shadow comes again. People have said this. And the answer to that is, it doesn't go away. That to which the serenity and the peace came is the same serene, unchanging light to which it seems to be going away. Note that, that going away, that fading away, that approaching confusion and darkness, that is also experienced, right? Experienced in what light? Experienced by what? By that undisturbed consciousness. What was... What you already had, that's what Vedanta gives you. What was never there, that's what Vedanta removes. So it reminds me of this old Wild West story. Not a story, a real thing. In the a Wild West town here, um, you've heard of the term snake oil salesman? Yeah. So, you know, there were these quacks who would go around selling cures, a cure all for all, all problems. So Vedanta sounds like that. Every, all problems would be solved if you... <laughs> um, there's this... Uh, a quack like that, a snake oil salesman who was put, thrown into prison by the judge. And the judge said, the charge was uh, giving uh, real cures for imaginary diseases and imaginary cures for real diseases. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Vedanta really works. But it is, I will say this much, it is a kind of finishing school. Yeah. A finishing school. Try everything, whatever you want to try. Yeah. Arousing the kundalini and this mantra and that, uh, uh, this ritual and uh, um, philosophies and uh, meditation techniques and variety. And all of them are good. They all prepare you. Once you make the breakthrough here, you find they're all good. You can carry on with those practices or not. But you have got the bedrock of the universe. 
and it is you yourself. Here, let me take up one more interesting thing. In the 116th verse in Aparokshanabhuti, one of the things in the yogic meditation is drishti. Drishti means where do I keep my eyes? What do I do? Why is this, why is this a question? Because what you are looking at, that engages your mind immediately. And they say, even neuroscience says that a good deal of our cognitive capacity is tied up with the visual cortex. So if your eyes are active, a lot of your thinking power goes into that. Your processing power goes into that. That's why when you want to feel something intensely, you close your eyes. When you want to listen to wonderful music and, uh, you know, close your eyes. When you want to savor de delicious food, you close your eyes. Intensely trying to understand something, you close your eyes. Because seeing disturbs that. Your cognitive capacity is taken away. Now the problem with, so you, you would think that it's a no-brainer. When you want to meditate, you would like to close your eyes. But if you close your eyes, the problem is, our minds are, have been trained. Closing eyes means falling asleep. The mind is trained, you know, we're closing the eyes. Oh, the guy wants to sleep. Good. <laughs> Off we go. And that's why so many people fall asleep. Another reason is we don't really know. Many people are really tired. In this modern life, sleep deprived, and especially New York, <laughs> city that never sleeps. It only sleeps when you meditate. <laughs> because the bodies and minds are so worn out and tired that uh, uh, a little bit of rest and opportunity and the mind goes off to sleep. And it's not bad, it's good, it's good. Um, so, but the problem remains for meditation that if closing the eyes, opening the eyes, distraction, closing the eyes, going to up to sleep, then what do you do with the eyes? So that's why they have a, this thing, drishti. And they have different things like looking at the tip of your nose and then, then they'll have discussion on which is the tip, this one or this one? <laughs> well, this one actually. Uh, and not this one, you'll go, don't try it, you'll go cross-eyed if you try that. But the point is not actually trying to stare at the tip of your nose. You know, like somebody, I see, I see people glaring at the tip of their noses. <laughs> no, that's not the point. Gently keep the eyes downward. In fact, if you look at Vivekananda's meditation posture, you'll clearly see eyes are not fully closed. They're gentle, very slightly they're open and, and eyes fixed. Classic yogi posture. So the eyes get fixed there. Once the eyeballs get fixed, mind gets fixed also. It's no, not much use if I keep my eyelids closed and the eyeballs are still moving. Mine will still move. It's not our topic today, but I'll just share with you. These uh, yogis, they have been meditating for thousands of years, so they have discovered some interesting things. Three things which help you in meditation. <clears throat> the Steadiness of body, breath, eyes, vision. Each of them is connected to the disturbance of the mind and steadiness of the mind. Movement of the body immediately disturbs the mind. How delicate is the mind? Imagine a bowl, a china bowl filled to the brim with water, filled to the brim with water. How carefully you have to hold it not to spill anything. So imagine now you're holding it like this. You sit here, you're holding the bowl like this. How steady you have to be. Not rigid, because if you are rigid, what happens is the muscles will get tired very soon and you'll start slouching very quickly. Relaxed, straight and absolutely unmoving. Like the mountain, old mountain, unmoving. As the body becomes unmoving over a period of time, the mind calms down. The slightest, if you shake the bowl a little bit, a little trembling, the water moves much more. You know, the water sloshes about much more. Similarly, 
little movement of the body also disturbs the mind. So stability of body, number one. Number two, stability of breath. They have a nice description. They say the prana, the in-breath and the out-breath. You know the bellows in a furnace, in a hand furnace, when you pump air with the bellows and the fire blazes forth more? So think of the lungs like the bellows, which pump the air and the fire of the mind blazes forth even more. Now you can't stop breathing, bad advice. <laughs> so it has to be rhythmic, deep and gentle. You shouldn't be able to feel the breath here. It should be so gentle. And deep and continuous so that the mind becomes calm. And the third one is the eyes. The movement of the eyeballs leads to movement of the mind. And the, the more the eyeballs are kept steady, the mind becomes steadier. So drishti, that's why the yogis try to fix their um, sight on something. So a bhakta, for example, it's a good idea. There are different techniques. Good idea is, here is my chosen deity. Maybe Krishna, Ramakrishna, or whatever is the chosen deity. Here is the picture or the image. Now I will keep my eyes steady within the limits of that picture. And then people do that. They rotate the vision from the feet to the waist, to the hands, to the chest, to the head, and then the whole body. And then again begin. So it keeps a control of the, of the eyes and fixes it there. Fix it in space, the movement of the eyes. That's a de devotee does that. A yogi fixes the eyes here or closes the eyes, but fixes the eyeball so that it doesn't move. It steadies the mind immediately. Physical steadiness, deep rhythmic breathing. Deep breathing doesn't mean like a bellow. <sighs> Some people sound like, <laughs> like an old steam engine getting ready to chug along. No. That will straight away disturb the mind. Very gentle and deep. And fixed vision. But of course, Shankara will have none of it. Let's see what he says. All this is yoga. Now what does Advaita say about vision? <clears throat> Verse 116. Drishtim yanamayim jagat Sadrishti paramodara Nanasagravalokini He says, Make your vision a vision of knowledge, of realization. Realizing that you are Brahman, see whatever you see is Brahman. Prashyet Brahmamayam Jagat. The entire Jagat in the universe is pervaded by Brahman. Remember, pervaded, immediately the word is a little misleading. You light incense here and the incense pervades the room. Brahman does not pervade the universe in that sense. Pure awareness or pure being or presence. It pervades the universe in what sense? In the sense that the wood pervades the table. The table and wood are not two different things. It's not that the table is a space which wood has gone and pervaded. No. The wood is the table. Or the table is nothing but the wood. And the wood is the reality of the table. But two are not exactly the same. They are not exactly the same. Why? Because in Vedanta, the table is what we call a dependent reality. The wood is an independent reality with respect to the table. Because the wood was wood before it became a table, when it is a table, and when you can no longer call it a table, it will still be wood. It may be wood chips. So, in the same way, pure being or presence is now appearing as this waking universe. Universe of your waking here. Every bit of it is that presence which you are, that existence, consciousness, bliss. This is called Jnanamai Drishti, the vision of knowledge. Jnana, knowledge, realization. What Jnana? Remember, I talked about three Jnanas there. Vritti Jnana, Swarupa Jnana, Brahma Jnana. This is Brahma Jnana, that I realize everything is Brahman. 
that vision now whatever you look at whether you look at a table oh it's wood whether you look at at a chair oh it's wood whether you look at the walls of this house oh it's wood similarly whatever you look at is that being and awareness and bliss drishtim gyanamayam kritva pashyet brahmamayam jagat having realized that existence consciousness bliss where as you yourself now open your eyes literally your physical eyes and look upon the world as a manifestation of you yourself sadrishti paramo udara this is the most universal kind of seeing drishti means seeing and then with a little bit of mischief and playfulness he says na nasagra avalokani not staring at the tip of your nose <laughs> yes sentient being is equivalent to pure consciousness mhm i did not i said pure consciousness is now appearing as a sentient being in conjunction with mind and body this is a sentient being okay so uh, okay so if there is another person and only that person is also an experience yes just like a table right but don't treat people like tables and chairs <laughs> <laughs> okay no whose person first hand experience my who are you what is your name hmm no are you speaking as abhijit or are you speaking as pure awareness as pure awareness my i and my neighbor it's not that my neighbor is not there i and my neighbor are one right i am that pure awareness here as swami there as abhijit the same pure awareness same consciousness you are my own atman and as abhijit as that person your real nature is pure consciousness as is your neighbor's real nature is that pure consciousness you don't use a philosophical word like pure consciousness just say god do if you use a devotee's words god dwells in me just as god dwells in him yes yes bill i can take the point of view that i'm observing bill and uh, bill is an object yes again i have access to bill who is that i, I it is bill's mind who is speaking this now i'm trying to speak as the witness you cannot when you try to speak as the witness the witness will speak through you as bill as bill's mind this you see this question comes again and again if i am the consciousness in all beings i should just as i know the contents of this mind and the experiences of this person i should be able to know the experiences of every person but remember to know something to know something the mind must be in operation right so which mind is in operation here this mind is in operation there that mind is in operation in each case the knowing happens in that individual and the same impersonal consciousness lights up everything right wait so now you're going to something else but have you understood this much up to this point have you understood this what i'm trying to say that our knowing happens in this body with of this mind imagine even in bill's body and mind even that one you don't have any access to the moment you fall asleep so who is it that is doing the knowing there and getting the access there that's the mind that mind itself bill's mind has no access to bill's body the moment bill's body falls asleep and bill's mind itself has no access to itself the moment it falls asleep in deep sleep right so bill's waking and accessing bill's own uh, body mind in the waking state is revealed to that same consciousness 
and the mind working in dreams and dreaming dreams is revealed to the same consciousness and the mind going off to sleep into blankness and darkness is revealed to the same consciousness which is the same everywhere Yes. Then I, I, I try, try and work on Bill's consciousness as an object rather than... Like Not Bill's consciousness as an object, Bill's mind as an object. The contents of Bill's mind as, right. as an object. Yes. So at some point through this practice, somehow my awareness will expand? No. That is, you'll say that such things have been reported. It is true. But that's a different thing. And that's where... The mind of that yogi becomes super fine, highly refined and expands and becomes sensitive to the minds of others and becomes identified with, if not everybody, at least many people's minds. Sri Ramakrishna, for example, he felt the pain of somebody else who was hit intensely, as if that per in that person's body. That's a super fine body and mind, able to catch the experiences of others. All yogis might not get that. And you don't see such reports for, from all, all yogis or all spiritual seekers. So to make a distinction between the experience afforded to you by that body and mind and the awareness to which these experiences are coming. That awareness... See, you have to move from the personal as Bill to the impersonal. Yes. No, uh, there are, there's a difference between what Bill is asking and what you're asking, what you're saying. Empathy is sensing the feelings of others. Right. Any human being sensitive enough can mirror the feelings of others. Even neuroscience, they're talking about mirror neurons or something. So you are recreating the feelings of the other person. You're sensitive. You can sort of um, see in yourself, feel in yourself what they're feeling. Wait, that is different from what he's asking. He's saying that as I directly experience my own thoughts, feelings, and memories, can I directly experience the thoughts, feelings, and memories of others? And if I were the consciousness in all beings, I should be able to do that. And my answer to him was, no. If you are the mind in others, you'll be able to do that. First, instead of going there, try clearly to see the difference between awareness and mind. One of the best ways of doing that is to see what awareness persists in deep sleep. If you, if you look at the transitions between waking, dreaming and deep sleep, you'll be able to appreciate awareness as itself, apart from the mind. Right. Right. Yes. Now, go back to what I mentioned: the distinction between vritti jnana and swarupa jnana. Vritti jnana is what you are calling that small a awareness, and swarupa jnana is that capital A what you are calling capital A. The difference is this. Look at this model. By the way, this is not what it really is. Because I'm just splitting it apart for, it's an analytical model. The reality would be all is one consciousness and in that all these things appear. But here, there is mind and there is a body. Now, this is to explain the difference between that, what you are calling capital A and small a. This is consciousness shines in the mind and lights up the mind and whatever happens in the mind suppose this person is seeing a tree this person is seeing a tree and then what happens in the mind you get the vritti of a tree and consciousness lights it up and this person says 
I had the first person experience of seeing a tree. This is Molly awareness according to you. So the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, talking, all our conscious experiences which I have and which say the table does not have, presumably. Right? So this is, this is what is called Vritti Jnana. This is Vritti Jnana. And it happens in the mind. Vritti here means Chitta Vritti, modification of the mind. Jnana is awareness or consciousness. So consciousness enables this. Mind does everything. There is an external object, there is a body, there is a sensory system, there is a mind. All of it produces, finally culminates in a Vritti in the mind, a movement in the mind whose content is the tree outside. That tree is recreated in the mind. Up to the brain, science is exploring and understanding more and more. But what happens at this point, we really don't know. What's the connection between the mind and exactly the connection between... There is a connection, but what it is, we don't know. Anyway, so there's a vritti in the mind. And that is lit up by the consciousness in the mind. This consciousness in the mind, to be technical, is what is called chidabhasa, uh, reflected awareness. This is what you feel right now. All of us, unless you are a zombie, you are feeling it right now. Awareness. It is nothing other than that awareness is in essence nothing other than the, what you are calling capital A, the pure consciousness. That reflected in the mind becomes Vritti Jnana. In itself, that awareness is Swarupa Jnana. Now, what is the difference between me and the table? The difference is this. I have a physical body, here. And the table has a physical body, there. There's a physical entity, there we are equivalent. But the table doesn't have this, the table doesn't have this subtle body, sukshma sharira. In Vedantic terms, think about, so in Vedant, Vedantic terms, this is called Gross body, not because it's gross or awful. <laughs> it, ca it could be. <laughs> but, and then there is a subtle body, sukshma sharira. And there is the real self. Each deeper and more intimate and more interior than the other. Now, there is, the table has a physical form, a physical body, but it doesn't have a subtle body. So it is what we would call, it, it would, doesn't have Ritti Jnana, it doesn't have this small a. That's as far as that small a is concerned. It doesn't have a first person experience of anything at all. Just like you have first person experiences. In the Keno Upanishad, the student, the student asked, Sir, revered sir, what is that light by which I see and hear and smell and touch and think and remember and speak? Ritti Jnana. And this Vritti Jnana is possible because of mind plus consciousness, or consciousness shining on the mind. If this mind is not there, this subtle body is not there, then this physical entity would not have an inner experience. So the small a is not there. But in what sense is this thing? Vedanta says that not only the consciousness is there, but it also appears, actually, really speaking, the correct diagram would be like this. Now we are going to the other one, the other part of your question. In what sense is everything consciousness then? A better diagram here would be that it is one consciousness everywhere. This is pure consciousness. In it all these things are appearing. So in that sense, because this consciousness is also called existence, being. One way in Vedanta, which Vedanta understands this is, that those names and forms, these are all names and forms, just like the table is a particular name and form of wood, the door is a particular name and form of wood, these are all names and forms, the tree and the table and the human body, they're all names and, and the mind, they're all names and forms of the pure consciousness, the pure being. Now the difference is this, some names and forms, like the table, 
they borrow only existence from from uh, Brahman, from pure consciousness, from from this existence consciousness, Satchit. Some like the so the physical body, this body, they all borrow only existence. So they 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 are you can see isness everywhere. But some like the mind, the minds in us, they borrow not only existence, they also borrow awareness from Brahman. So the minds not only exist, but they shine with awareness. And going further, it is the sattvic mind, the purified or refined mind, which borrows existence, consciousness and bliss from Brahman. So it not only is, it not only is aware, but it's also full of joy, at least momentarily as long as it is sattvic. I packed a lot into that. <laughs> Think about it. All right, Deepak. Swami, coming back to first your message, you were just talking about Gareth, you talked about the four. Yes, the issue I had is in all this construct, the role of the brain, mind would be complex. Yes. It's very hard to get away from because the table can never know its work. No, it cannot because it doesn't, it, it doesn't have... It doesn't have that complex. No, it doesn't. It cannot know its true nature. Yes. The, yes. That in some ways makes pure consciousness not the primary driver because we need this complex. No, we don't actually. We don't have we, no, we don't actually. It's exactly the other way around. It's exactly the other way around. The body, mind, brain, they all need that pure consciousness or that, that Brahman for what? For existence, for awareness. Without that, these are nothing. They don't, they'll disappear into non-existence. <coughs> yes. Brahman can savor itself in a particular way. I, as this limited individual human being, I suddenly realize my nature as Brahman. Or rather, it would be much more true to say Brahman realizes itself through this particular manifestation. It's like, I see my face. To see my face, I need a mirror. But my face doesn't depend on a mirror. Only the experience of seeing my face, I require the mirror. And here at least I'm depending on something called a mirror to see my face. But in the case of Brahman, the mirror is also Brahman. Yeah, all of this. right? Because we are analyzing it in this way, suddenly these dependencies seem to be uh, cropping up. But when you think about it, we are analyzing in this way to understand. When you think about it, it is one whole. Everything that you see here belongs to Brahman. It's not like that Brahman has borrowed a body and mind from somebody else and depends like a crutch on that borrowed body and mind. No. Brahman alone appears as the mind. Brahman alone appears as the body. But if I am Brahman, yes. And the only way I can realize I am Brahman is through this mind complex. Uh, let me um, translate it further. Let me extend it further. The only way I can realize that I am Brahman is through this mind which is none other than me, the Brahman. Which is not, this body which is none other than me, the Brahman. This universe which is none other than me, the Brahman. That means Brahman can realize itself through itself. But not the table. Not that? But the table is nothing other than Brahman. <laughs> you are still thinking of the table as an individual. The only individual here, only Vivekananda said, the only individual is the absolute, is Brahman itself. Even we are not individuals in that sense. We are, we are all work in progress. We say no, WIP, work in progress. <laughs> Where is our individuality? You cannot stop at any one point until you reach the ocean, the absolute. That is the only individual that there is. We, are, we will disappear. Within, um, within a few minutes, we'll be gone. The hall will be empty. Within a few years, we'll be gone from this world also. As individuals, where are we? We are very fleeting. As Brahman, we are the reality of this universe. And in fact, we are Brahman. If you take it from your point of view, as an individual's point of view, it seems Brahman depends on me to get realized. No. I depend entirely on Brahman for my very existence, for my awareness, for my realizations, everything. All of this is happening because of Brahman. I'll come to you. Yes, that gentleman there. 
seems real to you at that moment, yes. Yes. Then, whatever we are doing becomes I mean, more uh, meaningful. In one, like one sense, it is true. When you wake up from the dream, one thing happens that everything in the dream, including the table of your dreams, is nothing but you, the, the dreaming mind. Similarly, everything in this universe is nothing but the underlying consciousness, Brahman, which is you. But you as the capital consciousness, not the, the movements of the mind. Not the consciousness reflected in the movements of the mind. Yes. How is Sachidananda the only guru? And how can we say that Sri Ramakrishna is Sachidananda itself? Right. In Vedanta, the guru is very important. Why is the guru important? Because Vedanta is a system of knowledge. Ultimately, the way the whole problem is set up is we don't know who or what we are. And the solution is to know who or what we are. So that knowing, that knowledge is very important. And therefore the transmitter of the knowledge becomes all important. That's why Upanishad, the text. That's why Guru, the transmitter of the text, the illuminer of the text, the revealer of the text, becomes of paramount importance. Because the Guru reveals to us the most important thing in our lives. It he tells us, it's a diamond. It's not a rock. You've got it all the time. It's, that's why the Guru is so important. Now, in Vedanta you go deeper. What is the Guru? There is something called Anugraha Shakti. The, the grace, literally the grace of God. So God has many powers. Creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, destroyer of the universe controller of the universe and the bestower of grace. In Vedanta, the grace is expressed as Brahma Jnana, knowledge. So, Guru is an expression of the grace of God. The most important thing, of course, God has created this universe, given me the body, but ultimately what will rescue me from the whole thing is the grace of God. And the grace of God comes in the form of Guru. The human Guru is the vessel. But it is the same grace, Sri Ramakrishna says, um, rainwater pouring down on the roof of a house. There are different spouts in ornate, in, in, in old British houses in uh, Calcutta. They had those dragon mouths, you know, the, the different gargoyles. On the, so different mouths, but the same water coming out from the same source, from different mouths. In the same, same way, different forms of the human guru, but it is the same source. It is the grace of God. It is called Anugraha Shakti, the grace of God. That's why the Guru is most valuable. And that is that Anugraha Shakti comes from none other than Satchidananda. That's why we chant Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Reva Param Brahma, Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha. Guru is Brahma, Guru is none other than Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwara. Guru is the is the the the, the Parabrahma, the Supreme Brahman. Satchidananda is itself appears as your guru. That's why I salute the guru. Who is Sri Ramakrishna? I, yesterday I mentioned Swami Suhitanandaji. He was the sevak, the attendant for Swami Premeshananda for many, many years. Swami Premeshananda was a disciple of the Holy Mother and in his lifetime he was recognized as a Brahmagyani, a knower of Brahman. So Suhitanandaji um, told me with this, this, he told me personally this story that one day he just wanted to test Swami Premesh. Test is too strong a word, but just, just to see. So Swami Premeshanda, he was ill, he was lying on the bed, and Suhitanji went and asked, Maharaj, what are you thinking of just now? Random. <laughs> what are you thinking about just now? And without a pause, the answer came. Sarvabhyapi Sri Ramakrishna, the all-pervading Sri Ramakrishna. And then Suhitanji said, but Sri Ramakrishna is a man, that man with the, in the photo with a beard, how can he be all-pervading? 
And Premeshanji, right there, straight away he answered, he smiled faintly and he said, you will understand one day. What does he mean? What you see as a human form, they are sitting in the, that is one manifestation which in which he appeared in, in that particular form. Those who see higher, they see the inner person. Those who see even higher, they see the background which was appearing as that inner person and the physical form. That background is none other than Satchidananda, the all-pervading reality. Somebody asked, I think Swami Brahmananda, that uh, we are making an image of Sri Ramakrishna or a picture of Sri Ramakrishna painting, you have to tell us. And then uh, Swami Brahmananda said something very strange. Swami Brahmananda, Swami Shivananda, he said something very strange. Yes, but which form of Sri Ramakrishna? That's a strange question for us, because that's only one form we have got. No, which form of Sri Ramakrishna? <laughs> so what they called Sri Ramakrishna is what we call Brahman. Look, here is one thing I want to share with you. It relates to your question. Somebody else wanted to ask a question. Hold on, to, hold on. Remember the question, don't forget. Here is one more practice. Relates to that question. How can we understand Sri Ramakrishna as Satchidananda? That is the question. Here is a practice. Pranayama. You know, in yoga, control of the breath, that is one practice. And you know what Shankara is going to do with that. He takes up the word pranayama and he says, What is pranayama? Pranayama has three parts. Breathing in, it is called puraka. Holding, called kumbhaka. And letting go, called rechaka. Breathing out. So these are the three parts of pranayama. And there's a whole set of techniques. But what does Shankara do? He says, he starts with letting go, breathing out. What is breathing out? Seeing that the world is false. Jagat Mithya, that is breathing out. And then what is um, breathing in? I am Brahman, that is breathing in. And what is holding the breath? Stabilizing there, that I am Brahman. That is holding the breath. And letting go again? This world is an appearance. Breathing in, I am Brahman. Holding the breath? That is... Look at the verse, I'll try and, then I'll relate it to what you asked. Nishedhanam prapanchasya This is verse number 119 and 20. Nishedhanam prapanchasya Rechakakya samiranaha Brahmai vasmeti avritti Purako vayuri rita Tatas tadvritti naishchalyam Kumbhaka prana sanyamaha Ayam chapi prabuddhanam Agyanam grana pedanam He says, um, What is breathing out? Seeing the falsity of the world. The world is an appearance. What is breathing in? Brahmheva smiti, yavritti. The vritti which says, I am Brahman. What is that vritti? Brahma jnana. Remember? Swarupa jnana, vritti jnana, swarupa jnana, brahma jnana. The brahma jnana is the vritti which makes me realize I am Brahman. What is the vritti? This, this vritti makes me realize it's a book. I am experiencing the book. When I say I am Brahman and not just saying it, actually it becomes a reality for me. That is Brahma Jnana. So that Brahma Jnana is breathing in and stabilizing that Vritti. I will not complain again, it's going away, it's fading away. It was good in the retreat, but now that the retreat is over, it's fading away fast. Make it stay. No, that is holding the breath. Don't hold your breath physically, it'll turn blue in the face. <laughs> All right. And this, he says, is the pranayama of the jnani, of the enlightened. And of the unenlightened, the pranayama of the unenlightened, you know how the yogis practice pranayama? It's like this. Breathing in is like this. And you keep count here. Oh, 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 four times. Then close this. 
keep count here, 16 times ohm, and then release this, 8 times ohm. So there's a cycle, 4, 16, 8, 8, and then you multiply that. So that is, this is the, how they do it. No, don't learn this, <laughs> not necessary. So he's saying, why I said showed that is, it'll make sense now. He says, this is the pranayama of the enlightened. What is the pranayama of the unenlightened? He says it is grana piranam, torturing the nose. <laughs> Twisting the nose is, is the pranayama. He's a little playfully mischievous here. Now why did I say this? What is the relationship to Sri Ramakrishna being Satchidananda? Once, Swami um, uh, Shraddhananda, who was in Sacramento, he told this story. When he was in Belur, but many, many decades ago as a young monk, Swami Subodhananda, one of the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, who because of his childlike nature was called Khoka Maharaj. Khoka means little boy. So Shraddhanandaji saw Khoka Maharaj sitting on the top, the second floor, you know the floor near Swami Vivekananda's room, facing the Ganges. And on the other side is Calcutta. And he's reading a book and looking up and laughing. Again reading a book and looking up and laughing. And Swami Shraddhananda could not contain his curiosity. So he went up the stairs and he bowed down to the Swami and he said, Swami, what are you reading and what are you seeing and why are you laughing? And the Swami said, he was reading a Vedanta book. And he says, you know what it says in this book? The name was Bimal. You know Bimal what it says in this book? It says, Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Brahman is alone is real and the world is false. When I read Jagat Mithya, the world is false and I look up and I see just everything is mountains of ashes. Mountains of ashes. Piles. Chai Dipi, he says in Bengali. That means worthless. This is just name and form. From a world perspective, just names and forms. There's nothing there. And then when I read Brahma Satyam, Brahman alone is real and I look up and I see everything is Sri Ramakrishna. The same thing, this very same thing is a table in one point of view, it is wood in another point of view. The wood is the substance, the table is the name and form. Without the substance, it disappears into nothing. False. Yeah, in that sense. Done. Very good. It's time to bring the retreat to a close. Uh, in that diagram out there, uh, you have consciousness and it's, it's manifesting in different forms. Uh, do the Upanishads speak to why does it need to do that? Why does it need to take the form? <laughs> these, are, these are fundamental questions. But these questions come up and then you know it's every, everything is on the right track because at one point, this question will come to you. So why does it need to? Well, many, many answers are there. Let me deal with this first. So. <coughs> yes, so there are many answers. It will take a whole course in Vedanta for you to deal with. But let me put them out there for you. You think about it. One answer is karma. Why is the world like this? Why is Brahman appearing in this way? Because of our past karma. What is karma? Basically causality. The, the, the answer is basically almost like a scientific answer. The world has evolved in this way because of such and such past conditions. But you say, but then why did karma come at all? Why did there have to be karma? As Brahman, the non-dual reality, there's no karma there. Satchidananda is only one reality. So another answer, 
which is pleasing to the devotees, to the bhakta, is that this is the leela of God, a divine play. What seems to be samsara to us in ignorance, to the enlightened seems to be the leela, the play of, of a divinity, of a luminous divinity which you realize within yourself, then everything seems to be a play of that. Even suffering. There's, that's one answer. There is another answer. Another answer is um, that um, maya. Maya is, it is that which makes Brahman appear as this world. What is the answer here? You are asking, why does Brahman have to be all this? The answer is, Brahman is not all this. It only appears to be all this. If you ask, why did the rope have to become a snake? The answer is, it did not become a snake. It just looks like a snake. At no point was it a snake. But you can push further. You can ask, all right, even if I grant that it's an appearance and everything is perfect, it is just Brahman right now, yet why does it need to appear like this? You might ask that. And if you, so basically you're asking, why Maya at all? Isn't it? Brahman is perfect. Pure being, pure awareness, pure consciousness. Maya makes it appear like this. An immortal world, an immortal reality appearing as a mortal world. Uh, pure awareness appearing as conscious and non-conscious. Leading to the question like conscious being and unconscious table. And pure bliss appearing as a world of suffering. Why? If you ask. An answer is Maya, then you can ask legitimately why Maya? Why at all Maya? Why couldn't Brahman just remain nicely safe and sound, warm <laughs> un under the covers? Why did it have to come out of doors? <laughs> so, the question, answer to that, Vivekananda says the question itself is wrong. And he leaves it at that. Why the question? You can still persist. Why is the question wrong? Because I'm asking the question. Why is it wrong? I persisted in asking. It seems very clear to Vivekananda. But then I, re I realized, it took me a long time to realize that uh, why is the question wrong? If you ask why Maya, why is the question wrong? Because after all, what is Maya? Here we are going into very abstract philosophy. What is Maya? It is time-space causation. Desha, Kala, Nimitta. Time-space causation. The moment you ask why, tell me what answer would satisfy you. What exactly are you looking for? A cause. Why? The question why is you're asking for a cause. Why is the grass wet? Because it rained. Why did it rain? Because of the clouds. Why are there clouds? Because of evaporation. Why is there evaporation? Because of the sun. You're asking for a cause. You say, what's wrong? Yes, I'm asking for a cause. But you cannot ask for a cause of causation. Cause and effect starts only after causation. Maya itself is causation. I'll make it even simpler. Maya is also time and space. Suppose you ask, what is outside space? The question doesn't make sense because outside and inside are space questions. Where there is no space, there is no outside and inside. The question itself falls apart. If you ask, what was there before time? People ask, what was there before the Big Bang? Before time, before time began. It seems to be logical, but it's not logical because before and after are time words. You cannot use them um, in a valid way without any time. Similarly, cause and effect are causation words. Without causation, that means without Maya, you cannot ask why Maya, because why is there no causation? You know what it means? This world is not causally linked to Brahman. Brahman did not actually cause this world. If that is also not satisfying, there's one final thing which I found from, I think Swami Trigunatitananda probably. I don't know which Swami. One of the Swamis who was in San Francisco. He said, his final answer was, on this side of enlightenment, there is only the question, no answer to it. On that side of enlightenment, for the enlightened, there is only the answer, there is no question. <laughs> Have you noticed? None of the people you considered, you would consider to be enlightened, they, are, they never say, all right, I am enlightened now, I've become the Buddha, I'm a Jeevan Mukta, I'm enlightened, I'm saved, I've got salvation. But only one thing still bothers me. Why, Ishma? 
None of them seem to have this question, strangely enough. They can't give us an explanation, but they seem to be perfectly satisfied. They have found something that dissolves the question. Wittgenstein used to say, not solve the problem, dissolve the problem. Because it is not in addition to Brahman. Think about what Brahman is. Brahman is, first of all, isness. In addition, that means apart from Brahman, what will happen to Maya? Apart from is, other than is, different from is, is not. Maya will disappear. Apart from this wood, what will happen to the table? What will happen to the table? It will just blink out of existence. Maya has no existence apart from Brahman. Yet it is an inexplicable thing. So is it Brahman literally? No. Is it apart from Brahman? No. Then why do you even talk about it? Because you are experiencing the world. Basically one of the um, uh, definition of Maya is anirvachanyam, inexplicability. It cannot be explained as fundamentally real or as completely unreal. Alright, we'll, should we bring it to a close here? Yes, we have run out of time. <laughs> no, there will be a formal vote of thanks after this, I think, yes. <laughs> there, I thoroughly enjoyed this time. You know, they say one of the problems with having this kind of thing is they say that it is because of our great good karma that we, we uh, get this opportunity the law of karma says if you have good karma good things will happen to you if you have plenty of good karma you, you become spiritual but the downside of that is by coming to a spiritual event like this you have encashed a lot of your good karma <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what you have purchased with your good karma. <laughs> Spirituality. No, I'm just joking. No, don't worry. <laughs> I pray to the Lord, to Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother and Swami Vivekananda, to bless all of us. May this knowledge which we have heard, hearing this knowledge itself is a great blessing of God. May this continue to flower within us. Swami Vivekananda said, The truth is a corrosive substance of infinite power. Once you hear it, it will keep working within you. In whichever way you take it with shraddha, with respect, it will work faster. But you have heard it, it will continue to work. And it will lead us to that final fulfillment, the enlightenment, the, that Brahma Jnana, that moment of realization of who I am, what all this is, and that this, this whole cosmic game comes to a glorious culmination. I pray to the Lord that it may happen in this very life for all of us. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Parnamastur